This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So, um, recently Tracy sent me an I am, an instant message and said, everything I'm working on is horrible and sad. Please tell me you're picking something lighter. That's true story. And I had not finally decided on what I was doing for this particular recording yet. But one of the things on my list was a bit of relative hilarity and fairly harmless stuff called the Dreadnought Hoax. It sounds like it could be ominous, but it's not. It's funny. Uh Yeah, so we're using this as a bit of lighter fare to balance all the dark stuff that's been pretty common as of late. Uh, and really, the more I read about this, and there are several articles that I found that were written throughout the years on April Fool's Day to kind of laud this particular man that we're talking about that spearheaded this as like the perfect patron saint of April Fool's Day. Um but I don't want to wait a whole other year to do him because he's funny. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> well, and it's so rare for our show to actually fall directly on the day to you, which always, I don't know, always makes me feel weird doing a specifically April Fool's episode when our episodes are coming out on like the third and the fifth that week or something. Yeah, because so many listeners aren't necessarily listening on the day of publish. It just is a little bit tricky. So anyway, we're getting tomfoolery in May. We're talking about uh, William Horace DeVere Cole and the Dreadnought Hoax. To start this prank story, we have to start out with the prankster Holly just mentioned, who was at the head of it, because he's one of the most infamous pranksters in history. Pranking people seemed like it was his life's calling. Yeah, William Horace de Vercole, as I said, who went by Horace, and usually he's referred to anytime someone's writing about him, like even his friends, as just Cole, was born in Ireland on May 5th of 1881 into a wealthy family. As a consequence, uh, he is one of those children of wealth who did not really have to take on a, a, a real profession, which is probably why he had so much time for pranking. Uh, his mother was Irish, and his father was an officer in the 3rd Dragoon Guards, which was a British Army Cavalry Regiment. He attended Eton as a boy, and while he was there, a bout of diphtheria at the age of 10 
permanently damaged his hearing, which left him very frustrated as he struggled to hear his teachers. His hearing impairment also kept him from joining the army, so he attended Cambridge instead of pursuing a military career as his father had done. And while he had always been a practical joker as a kid, uh, his more Loki-like characteristics really came into their own while he was at Cambridge. And it was there that uh, what would be considered the predecessor prank to the Dreadnought hoax was hatched. During his time at Cambridge, Cole and his close friend, Adrian Stephen, decided to masquerade as royalty. At the time, the Sultan of Zanzibar was in England on a tour, so Cole decided that Stephen should pose as the Sultan and that he should play the part of the Sultan's uncle and translator, and they would see who they could fool. So he and his friend got themselves into costume, and they telegrammed the Cambridge mayor's office that the Sultan was about to arrive. So the mayor's office quickly rallied to accommodate and properly greet their noteworthy guest. When Cole and his friend arrived at the Cambridge train station, the town clerk was waiting for them. They were taken uh, to a formal reception with the mayor that was arranged in honor of the sultan, and then they were given a tour of the town. They visited academic institutions, and they were introduced to prominent members of the community. Yeah, they were basically given tours of the school they attended and had to pretend that it was all amazing and new to them. Uh, they almost ran into a little bit of trouble when a woman who had been a missionary attempted to speak with the Sultan in his native language, uh, which neither Cole nor Stephen knew. And they managed to dodge this well-meaning lady by telling her that she should only address the Sultan directly if her intention was to become part of his harem. And that pretty quickly ended that conversation. I like how a lot of the success of several of their pranks relies on, like, the lack of cultural literacy. Completely. The around them. So after this long day of tours, receptions, and meet and greets, Cole and Stephen were taken back to the train station where they vanished into the crowd of travelers. The mayor and his colleagues were none the wiser that they had spent their day being duped by college students. Uh, and he, uh, Cole and Adrian Stephen with him played all manner of pranks, uh, throughout Cole's life on a variety of scales. So I put together a list of a handful of them. Uh, once he threw a lavish party, but only invited guests who had the word bottom in their names. And that was something that none of them realized until they were actually there and started introducing themselves. I'm just imagining that the introductions themselves were also comical. <laughs> And apparently he, if he attended that party, I think he was incognito. He wasn't there, like, as the host. He just kind of watched it all uh, in in anonymity. At another point, he challenged a member of parliament to a foot race for fun, and he even offered the man a head start. And once that gentleman had started running, Cole started calling for the police, uh, who stopped that man and found Cole's watch which had been planted on that poor, unsuspecting politician in his pocket. <laughs> so that one is a little bit um, mean. I mean, it's more than a little bit mean. But some of his do take on a, a slightly um, cruel tone rather than just being funny. I also feel like today that would be a much more dangerous prank. Yes, for sure. On another occasion, he purchased strategically selected theater seats for an event. And he gave those tickets to bald men. 
So from the balcony seats, audience members could clearly see that their heads spelled out an expletive. That to me is one of those things that is so, um, it takes a lot of forethought on that one to like figure out which seats you would have to purchase to spell out a dirty word. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he gets points for ingenuity on that. He definitely was smart. Uh, and in another somewhat daring stunt, he disguised himself as a workman. And with several similarly attired friends, uh, some accounts indicate that these were not his friends, but people who uh, were actually workmen that he had duped into it. And other accounts suggest that he had basically gone to a bar and found some inebriated men and, and said he was giving them work. The thing with, pranksters and the stories around them is that they get told by a lot of different people and the details get very shifty. Uh, but we do know that he uh, and a number of people disguised as workmen strolled onto the street at Piccadilly Circus and set up barricades around the heavily trafficked junction. And then he and his fellow pranksters then proceeded to dig up the street and a policeman was rerouting cars around them, presuming that he and the rest of them were city workers. And after digging a trench across the busy road, he and these other people retreated, at least in the versions where it's his friends, uh, they were with him, to a nearby hotel room that had a view of Piccadilly Circus so they could watch the chaos below as municipal workers sorted this confusing situation out. This is one where I hope they were all his friends because I don't like this prank very much if it's like getting people who are just trying to do their jobs in trouble. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) When Cole got married in 1919 to Mavis Wright, he had to keep the date of their wedding a secret This was because he had made someone else's wedding into a prank, and he was afraid that something was going to happen to try to get back at him for it. What he had basically done was he stationed an array of young women outside the church and had each of them fling themselves at the groom when he arrived, begging him not to abandon her. Yeah, every woman was like, don't leave me, Eddie. Which, if you were a nervous groom on your wedding day or a nervous bride, could be both infuriating and very upsetting. I think I would be real mad. Yeah, it would depend on the person, I think. There are some people that could get away with that with me and others that could not. Uh, the timing of his wedding was also perfect for Cole because it was right before April Fool's Day. Uh, which will come up in a moment, why that was interesting. Uh, the just-married couple traveled to Venice for their honeymoon, but even then, Cole was focused on pranking. The night before April Fool's Day, he took leave of his new wife, and in cover of darkness, he got a hold of a massive load of horse manure from the mainland. He spent the night covering the Piazza San Marco with it. The city did not have any horses, but he basically created his own manure crisis as a joke. And so when dawn came, the residents of Venice were left wondering how in the world all that horse manure got into their city. (laughs) Yeah, it counts very from uh, whether people thought, like, some sort of mad stampede of horses had come through or if they thought some weird thing had happened where someone had accidentally tried to fertilize the square. There's a lot of, uh, you know, figuring out. Uh, and next up, we are going to talk about Cole's friend group uh, after they attended Cambridge which was an unusually talented and prank-prone group. But first, we're going to pause and have a quick little sponsor break. 
Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep-dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand, and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal, and they're candid, and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. In the second half of the first decade of the 20th century, Cole and Adrian Stephen, along with Clive and Vanessa Bell, Adrian's sister Virginia, who would later be known as Virginia Woolf, painter Duncan Grant, and other writers and artists formed this social group, which eventually came to be known as the Bloomsbury Group or the Bloomsbury Set. The name Bloomsbury came from the district that they frequented near London. Most of the members of the Bloomsbury Group had been friends since their time at Cambridge, and many of them had also been members of a semi-secret club at Cambridge called the Apostles. Truly unique in the story of the Bloomsbury crew is how many members went on to become noteworthy figures. In addition to those that we already mentioned, E.M. Forster, John Maynard Keynes, uh, and in even more loose connections, T.S. Eliot, Bertrand Russell, and Aldous Huxley were all linked to it all over the course of its two-plus decades. Yeah, it wasn't like they officially said, hey, we're forming a group. It was just basically a... a a social circle that happened to include some really amazing people. Yeah, it was sort of a a moniker applied to them. Correct. And this intellectual clique routinely met to socialize and discuss philosophy and politics and art, etc. But they uh, were unique in some ways in that they were not precious about any of it. They really maintained an attitude of irreverence when they were discussing all these things. And that also made them the perfect co-conspirators for someone like Cole. Cole's most famous prank involved a battleship, the pride of the British Navy, 
The British Navy had launched the, launched this new battleship in 1906 and called it the HMS Dreadnought. You've probably heard the name Dreadnought before to refer to a class of ships. Uh, when I told my husband what Holly was researching, he started talking about his many sci-fi stories yes. he likes to read, where like that's a commonly adopted name in the world of science fiction. Uh, that name for the class of ships came from this 1906 vessel, and that's because the HMS Dreadnought was a technological marvel of the time. It was massive, just a behemoth, and it was no joke when it came to naval power. The Dreadnought was 526 feet, which is about 160 meters long. It was crewed by 800 men, and it was powered via steam turbine, which was an advancement over the steam pistons of earlier naval vessels. And that gave it a significant speed boost, allowing it to travel as fast as 21 knots, which is about 24 miles per hour. And while that may not sound especially speedy, for a ship of that size at that time, it was an absolute marvel. The Dreadnought's firepower was similarly groundbreaking. It was equipped with no close-range guns. Instead, it had five twin turrets, each of which housed two 12-inch guns. That's about 30.5 centimeters. There were also five Maxim machine guns, four torpedo tubes, and 24 3-inch guns, 7.6 centimeters. Yeah, basically, it, it was uh, a time when the Navy was shifting from the idea of having to get close to your enemy to basically saying, no, we'll just hit them from a distance. It's fine. And they had incredible firepower to do it. And the HMS Dreadnought so advanced naval technology that those advancements set the standard for more than three decades after it uh was launched. It quickly doomed its predecessors to obsolescence, and it drew a lot of attention from the public as well as the military. While its might was absolutely uncontested as a marvel the world over, its high cost was a slightly more contentious issue in Great Britain. Additionally, Great Britain and Germany were in the middle of an arms race. So while the dreadnought was a point of pride, the military was also keen on maintaining a level of secrecy about its exact specifications and abilities. Yeah, they would certainly do... uh sort of showcase events with it, but it wasn't like they were publishing what it really was capable of, and a lot of people really wanted to find out. Uh, so a few years into the Dreadnought's life, Cole and his friends from the Bloomsbury set decided that they would love to see this ship up close and personal. And to accomplish this task, Cole and his cohorts launched a prank very similar to the one that he and Adrian Stephen had pulled at Cambridge years before. Allegedly, a friend who was an officer on another ship, the HMS Hawk, had also egged Cole on in this plan. Ooh. On February 7th, 1910, the 28-year-old Cole led his friends as they hatched their prank, which was incredibly brazen. This time, Cole sent a wire to the Admiralty with information that the Emperor of Abyssinia was en route and wished to see the fleet. This prank had been carefully planned to give the Admiralty no time to verify this information. The wire was sent at 3.07 and said that the Abyssinians would arrive promptly at 4.20. The Emperor and his cadre were played by Duncan Grant, Virginia Woolf, who dressed in full beard to hide her feminine features, Anthony Buxton, Guy Ridley, and Adrian Stephen. Uh, those that were playing the Abyssinians darkened their skin with makeup and assembled what they felt would pass for Abyssinian garb. Some of the accounts I read suggested that they actually paid an extremely high amount of money for... Um, a theatrical costume designer to create these outfits for them and that to sell the prank, uh, Cole insisted that they actually use real jewels 
on all of their accoutrements rather than using paste. Cole introduced himself as Chalmondelay of the Foreign Office, who was serving as escort to the foreign visitors. Adrian Stephen was the, quote, translator. He looked up a handful of Swahili words in an effort to sound convincing if he needed to, although apparently when push came to shove, he forgot everything he had crammed and instead performed the role by stringing together odd snippets of Latin and Greek that he had learned while studying classical literature. Stephen would later write of his gibberish language, quote, I was provided by my education then with a fine repertory of nonsense and did not have to fall back entirely on my own invention. I had to take care that neither the Latin nor the Greek should be recognized. So I broke up the words and so mispronounced them that probably they would have escaped notice even of the best scholar. Apparently, Buxton was extremely good at parroting the nonsense that Stephen came up with. He would reuse some of the made-up phrases throughout the day to help cement this masquerade. Yeah, so it did start to sound like a cohesive language to people that were maybe with them for long periods of time, but it was absolute nothingness. Uh, A full military greeting awaited them at Weymouth when they arrived, including Admiral Sir William Wordsworth Fisher in full formal dress. The emperor, uh, and we use air quotes every time, and his entourage were indeed invited aboard the dreadnought for a tour. And there was a live band to greet them, and African flags were flown along with the Union Jack. These disguises tricked everyone, even one of the Stevens' cousins, who was stationed aboard the dreadnought. He did not recognize either Adrian or Virginia. (laughs) Yeah, he did not realize that his lady cousin was one of the men he was talking to. The group was also invited to lunch on the ship, but they declined. The pranksters were presumably afraid that they might give themselves away if they stayed too long, but the excuse that they gave at the time was one of cultural specificity. They claimed that the royalty of Abyssinia could only eat specially prepared foods for religious reasons. And their other motivation for getting away before attempting a meal was their fear that their fake beards were not going to hold up to the rigors of chewing and wiping that would be required if they sat through a full lunch. I would also imagine that if you're not used to having a beard, eating without getting your food in your beard might be challenging. Yeah, those beards were a trick. In the late afternoon, the weather posed an additional danger to these pranksters. The wind started blowing and threatened to dislodge their fake facial hair. It also started drizzling, which was in danger of making their makeup run. So they made a hasty exit with the excuse that they had to catch a train. And as they left, the Navy band played the Zanzibar National Anthem after apologizing to the prank delegation that the Abyssinian Anthem could not be obtained in time. Uh, If you recall, Cole's earlier prank at Cambridge involved a claim of being from Zanzibar, so there was an extra layer of humor to that particular choice, although the Navy certainly could not have known it. When the visit was concluded, the Navy arranged for a carriage to carry what they believed was the Abyssinian entourage back to London. Even when they got on the train, Horace was still keeping up the act and demanded that the princes of Abyssinia only be served by attendants wearing white gloves. So while the train staff ran to purchase said gloves, the rest of the train was delayed. And we're about to get into what happened after the Dreadnought hoax, but first we're going to pause and have a quick word from a sponsor. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire. 
threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cole later wrote about the hoax uh, in a letter to a friend. Quote, it was glorious, shriekingly funny. I nearly howled when introducing the four princes to the admiral and then to the captain, for I made up their names in the train, but I forgot which was which, and I introduced them under various names, but it did not matter. I was so amused at just being myself in a tall hat. I had no disguise whatever and talked in an ordinary, friendly way to everyone. The others talked nonsense. We had all learned some Swahili. I said they were jolly savages, but that I didn't understand much of what they said. It began to rain slightly on the ship, and we only just got the princes undercover in time. Another moment, and their complexions would have been running. Are you amused? I am. Yesterday was a day worth the living. Exactly how this prank came to light is a little bit hazy. There are two primary accounts. In one, an officer from the Dreadnought asked if he could wear a medal that had been presented to him by the, quote, emperor with his uniform, which unraveled the truth. But there's a high probability that Cole himself actually spread the word of the prank by contacting the papers, complete with a provided photograph of the pranksters in costume. They had, in fact, stopped into the Lafayette Studios to have their portrait made in full regalia before they got on the train to Weymouth. Adrian Stevens' own account claims that he had no idea who leaked the story, as the entire group had agreed that they were not going to go public, but that once he saw the photo in the papers, he just presumed it was Cole. The Daily Mirror ran the story complete with the photo, recounting how the group of fake Abyssinians had used the words bunga bunga as part of their faux language while they utterly duped the HMS Dreadnought's high command. Bunga bunga would go on to have a small life of its own. It appeared in songs and became sort of a shorthand for teasing members of the Navy uh, as this whole incident became a massive embarrassment for them. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine like a a similar modern day thing where like one of our most important military assets is kind of made into a laughing stock. You can imagine the Navy would not be thrilled. Uh, And not long after this prank, the Emperor of Abyssinia did travel to London. This was within a few weeks of when they had done this. And he did ask to see the Navy's fleet. And he was, according to the account of Virginia Woolf, turned down because the Navy's policies on guest tours had been significantly tightened thanks to Cole and his coterie. There was very little in the way of repercussions for the Bloomsbury set, even though this, even after this whole thing became public knowledge, the Navy allegedly wanted some sort of action taken against the group, but none of them were ever formally charged with any crime. 
There are reports that either Cole, who openly admitted that the plan was his, or his collaborator Duncan Grant, was captured by several sailors from the British Navy and caned as a form of vigilante justice. But while there is some consistency in the caning portion, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, uh, just who received it varies from account to account. But Stevens' writing states pretty plainly that while members of the Navy did show up at Cole's house to get some sort of justice, Cole made a deal with them. They could cane him if he could then cane them back. So six ceremonial taps on the hindquarters were administered by each side, and that was the end of it. Yeah, it seems like in the end they all just kind of had a bit of a laugh and could say, yes, we punished him without really punishing him. Stephen also wrote that he and Cole ran into one of the officers from the battleship in the street after the hoax. Quote, one day walking with Cole near the top of Sloan Street, I saw the dreadnought captain and his wife. He saw us too and recognized us and pretended at first to be horrified and then to call a policeman. After a second or two, though, he began to laugh and in fact took the whole affair in the best of good humors. Horace DeVere Cole, despite having achieved what could easily be the most famous prank of his career in tomfoolery, continued this hobby for the rest of his life, including some of those pranks we mentioned earlier in the episode. One of his later in life uh, bits of jokery stemmed from the fact that he was often mistaken, particularly due to his white mustache, for Ramsay McDonald, the first Labor Party prime minister. And when Cole would realize that someone thought he was McDonald, he would launch into public speeches vehemently opposing the position of the Labor Party simply to enjoy the confusion it caused for everyone. Uh, Not everything was jolly throughout his life, though. Undoubtedly, the wealth and station he was born to had protected him from serious consequences for all of his pranking, even though a lot of his pranks were kind of jerk moves that came at the expense of other people. And his family was not merely rich, but also well-connected. His sister married the politician Neville Chamberlain, who would eventually become Prime Minister of Great Britain. Yeah, there's definitely, like, a degree of privilege that protected him from ever having anybody really punish him. I think it might uh, be, like, eight or ten degrees of privilege. Yeah. <laughs> it's a wide degree, for sure. Yeah, he, um, you know, if somebody of uh, a more middle-class or lower-class background tried these same stunts, I suspect it would not be greeted with the same guffaws and good humor. Uh, but unfortunately, Cole's fortune and disdain for propriety and his love of jokes could not protect him from the pitfalls of life. He actually lost that fortune in a real estate scheme. And his wife, Mavis, whose own inheritance had also been lost due to her husband's very poor financial decisions, left him not long after. Cole did eventually remarry, but that marriage was not ideal. His second wife had a child with another man while she was still married to Cole Eventually, he had to move to France, where he could manage with far less money than his life in London had required. Horace de Vercole died in Enfleur, France, in 1936 at the age of 55. He was at that point destitute, having failed to regain his financial standing. And remember that this was going on in the late 20s and early 30s, so there were some big financial things happening that would have made that very tricky. Uh, but so famed were his exploits that even though he died a pauper, his many tricks were lauded in his obituaries as great achievements, and they were in very big newspapers throughout both Europe and North America. That same year, Adrian Stevens published a brief memoir about his friendship with Cole and their tomfoolery, but it's mostly about the dreadnought hoax. 
Yeah, he talks a lot about their time at Cambridge, but it's all sort of as a groundwork for this one big event that they pulled off. Uh, in modern mentions, Cole's exploits actually played a small part in uh, Downton Abbey. In the fictional use of his handiwork, the Dowager Countess threatens to expose uh, Chamberlain as an accomplice in a number of Cole's pranks. There have also been various, like, uh, in the 40s, there was a comic written about the Dreadnought hoax, and it's shown up in a, a number of places, but the Downton Abbey one is the most recent yeah, I feel like it's shown up in fiction that I'm, I've read, but I would be hard pressed to tell you which specifically. Oh yeah, definitely has. I wonder if word of this ever got back to Abyssinia and how they felt <laughs> about that. Uh, cause like we said, like this whole thing really depended on like the stereotypes that they made up and also other people not knowing. About other yeah. Cultures. Well, and remember that both in Victorian and Edwardian time, there was this whole fascination with other cultures, but very yeah. little vetting of information. So people would just be like, oh, really? That's how it is? Fascinating. I love it. And they would never, like, do <laughs> any deeper research. So there's no telling how much, like, th- how many people were completely... Uh, misinformed as a consequence of this that maybe never realized they had been pranked. Like that or the Zanzibar episode during the Cambridge thing. We're like, did you know people from Zanzibar, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. (laughs) Did you know that you can only wear white gloves serving the Palestinian emperor? Yeah, it's very, very, um, it's weird. It is weird. Uh, (laughs) that that part is very problematic but um but mostly it is it is funny he lived a life where he was very dedicated to amusing himself and others sometimes at the expense of a third party but uh at least yeah. for the most part except maybe the part with the workers in the street that the targets were not people just generally trying to do their jobs yeah. And nobody, you know, fortunately there was no violence, which makes this one a little bit easier <laughs> than some of our recent episodes. Uh, so it, if people were hurt, it was at least not physically. Uh, I have listener mail that relates directly to my life. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, it's from our listener, Julia, and she says, Hi, guys. My sister and I both love your show. I like to listen while I'm painting. It makes the hours fly by, and it's a great way to squeeze some extra learning into my day. The 38th anniversary of the May 18th, 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption is coming up, and I'd love to hear your take on it. I recently moved to Perth, Western Australia, from Washington State, and I am missing home. Plus, my birthday is the day before the anniversary, so it would be extra special podcast for me. I grew up under the shadow of St. Helens in Battleground, Washington, so it's close to my heart. Aside from the usual tropes you hear about the eruption, it is a fascinating geological site. St. Helens also happens to be the most active volcano in the Cascade Range over the last 4,000 years. There are some really cool connections with indigenous history there, too. One of my history professors told us that native peoples avoided settling near St. Helens because oral histories and folklore warned that it had an angry spirit. On the other hand, nearby Mount Hood, one of the least active, was more benign and therefore a safe place to live. Pretty interesting and another reason to take oral testimony seriously, although please fact check me. Uh, anyway, thanks for hearing me out. I know you get lots of suggestions. Keep it up. Thanks for the fun and learning. Uh, I will never, ever do Mount St. Helens, probably. <laughs> 
Which is not, uh, sorry, Julia, I don't mean to shut you down. I literally watched that thing go off right. from the deck of my house as a kid. So one, it would make me feel terribly old <laughs> to talk about it as a historical event. But two, uh, kind of what we've talked about recently, uh, like with our move episode, we usually try to go a little further back than that for our history pieces. Yeah. Um, uh, not always, but usually, uh, you know, maybe when I'm in my seventies, I'll talk about <laughs> St. Helens as a historical event. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it was a very fascinating time, certainly, and my impressions of it are still quite strong. And I remember the various weird things about living there during that time and ash all over everything we owned all the time for months. Well, and that's um, also one of the things that we talked about when we made an exception to our general rule uh, in our, our move bombing episode um, was how it's it's kind of weird sometimes when we do an episode that a lot of people are likely to have personal memories of. Like yeah. the tenor, the tenor of our listener mail is very different from the <laughs> rest of the time. Um, but that is one that, like, I remember that happening, and I left, I left, I lived on the other side of the continent, not yeah. in a volcanically active place. Uh, but yeah. like, I vividly remember footage on the news and all that kind of stuff, and uh, and wondering. Maybe worrying. Maybe I was just curious and kind of fascinated. There was a, a mountain near us that had kind of volcanic, a volcanic shape. It's definitely mm-hmm. not a volcano, but I would just be like, but, but mom, what if it erupted? Yeah, that's pretty natural, I think, for a kid to do. Yeah, my big fear, cause I was nine when it happened, was, um, what about the animals? Yeah. Uh, which, you know, uh, it took a while for the, the mountain to sort of regain its its flora and fauna, and I'm sure it's different than it was before then. But anyway, so that's why we will probably never talk about it. Sorry to dash your hopes. Um, but one, I don't want to feel like I'm a million years old. <laughs> and two, it's so close that so many people have a, a really strong memory of it um, that it would uh, just be a little weird. It's kind of like telling people what their memories are, which is yeah. strange. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, if you want to write to us, you could do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We are also available across the spectrum of social media as at Mist in History. That includes Pinterest and Facebook and Instagram and Tumblr. Uh, yeah, come and see us. And you can also visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks.com. Type in almost anything you're curious about into the search bar there. You're going to get a wealth of information. You can visit me and Tracy at MissedInHistory.com, where we have all of our episodes ever that have happened since way before Tracy and I were working on the show, as well as show notes. Now we have, uh, I think we've probably transitioned over enough that it's not a huge surprise to anyone. Our show notes and our show page are consolidated into one for one handy place to access everything. Uh, and yeah, you should come and visit us there at mistinhistory.com and at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution with the restless business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready 
curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. In each episode, we'll learn more from the restless ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.